0: Hi, my name is Jack, and this is the second episode of Stories. I'm Louise. I'm uh, currently in Paris. And yeah, we're really excited to bring you Louis' story
1: today. I'm Louis Kirshner. We're living in northern Vermont, where we have a house in the country. That's an old farm from the middle of the 19th century. So we've been here all year because of the virus. And it's a beautiful place to be and to be isolated. In the past years, last few years, we've we've lived the, the majority of the time in Amsterdam, Netherlands. So now we're kind of an international expat couple. You know, my wife is teaching there in Amsterdam. That's our general situation. You know, I worked uh, as a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst my whole adult life. And I still do some work online, mostly for a program in China. So I'm retired, but I, I do, you know, a significant amount of work still in my chosen field every week.
0: Thank you so much for coming on. I'd love to hear about
1: the story you mentioned
0: and the Vietnam era and your own participation in anti-war movements.
1: Well, I have to say that being born... In 1940, you know, my whole life really was very much saturated with uh, being aware of war. My father was in the army in World War II and when was away from uh, me and my mother from the time I was about two and a half till five and a half, about three years. Uh, my mother and I lived with my grandmother and we I listened all the time to the news on the radio, which was always about the war. And my uncle told me all kinds of rather far-fetched stories about the war and my father's role in it. But I was very aware of it as a young child. And my father came back when I was five and a half, and he went back into civilian life, of course, and we moved. So that was a big change in our way of life, very dramatic. Sometimes he would send me these letters or cartoons, and often they were censored because military mail was always censored. But he had made, he got these cartoons, I guess somebody he knew got them so that he could send me these little cartoon postcards. Uh, And I knew where he was, you know, vaguely, not specifically because he wasn't allowed to say that in his letters. And I was very preoccupied with the Nazis as a little boy. There was a wreck of a submarine that washed up on the beach My mother's younger brother was involved in working as a volunteer, as a plane spotter from the roof of our building. And I don't know if it was a real job or just a pretend job, but he had a list. He had uh, a little um, list and pictures of different aircraft, and he was looking and identifying aircraft. And I guess at that time, especially earlier in the war, people were afraid of the Germans bombarding the coast or landing or something. And it definitely was an anxiety in my mind as a little boy. And then after the war, I soon went to elementary school. And then there were two big war events that occupied my mind a lot. One was the Israel War of Independence starting in 1948. And then uh, shortly after was the Korean War started. A little unsure of the timing exactly, but I was very caught up in both wars. I remember very vividly when General MacArthur landed the Marines at Incheon, and uh, there was a U.S. invaded South Korea to protect it against North Korea. And I was very much identified, of course, with the Marines and the U.S. military and the war in Korea. <clears throat> And that lasted until, I guess I was in junior high school. And so then that, that war kind of came to an end uh, around that time. And then uh, I was very aware, of course, of uh, issues about bomb shelters were a big issue at that time in the U.S. And we would have bomb drills and starting when I was in elementary school
0: of the fear of nuclear war
1: fear of nuclear war and i definitely my friends and i were were afraid of nuclear war and i remember even having a nightmare about it when i was about 10 or 11 so then when i was a little older i like most of the people i knew uh were kind of uh against the idea of building bomb shelters you know it seemed a a foolish waste of effort because there wouldn't be any shelter if there were a nuclear war and uh, that was the attitude. I got involved in a, uh, protesting against bomb shelters. I didn't. I was not a hugely active protester. Arguing with my father about it was probably the best I could do. But I did participate in a couple demonstrations against bomb shelters. And at one of them, we were confronted by these angry white people uh, who were basically saying your parents know what you're doing. You're wasting your time. This is dangerous. You're giving comfort to the enemy. You know, don't you care about your country? They were really going after us. And it was kind of intimidating to me. made me very uncomfortable. That may have uh, discouraged me from more activism. But this is sort of filling in a little bit who I was and the climate of the time. And then um, I went to medical school where I didn't have much time to do anything else. I mean, I'm short circuiting a lot of important events that were going on around me. The other thing to say is that when I was a senior in college, I spent uh, the term in Paris. And of course that was really at the height of two things. One, the end of the Vietnam War, which I was following very closely on the French radio the gradual uh, whittling away of the French little fortified bases as the uh, uh, Vietnamese began to come south. And then uh, also the uh, starting agitation about Algeria. People I knew were all very leftist. I didn't, but I, I followed it pretty closely and I wasn't sure exactly how I felt about it I, at the time. So that definitely was. Again, preoccupations about war.
0: And that was Algeria's war for independence from France. Yes, that's right. I have a question about, because, um, I mean, you mentioned also just now, but earlier with the Israel War of Independence and the Korean War that you had preoccupations. But I was just wondering if you could develop on what that meant or what kind of preoccupations uh, these were, especially since you mentioned earlier that from three to five, maybe a bit more, your your dad was away fighting, and you only had small communications with him. Um, So I was just curious what preoccupations meant to you, especially with these new wars as
1: you grew older. Well, uh, you know, the Israel war mainly had to do, as far as I was concerned at that time, with anti-Semitism and the danger for the Jewish people. I was very, uh, you know, concerned about the future of that war. I read about it, you know, The book Exodus, of course, made a big impression on me around that age, as did the book The Wall about the Warsaw Ghetto. So um, the thought of being in jeopardy as a Jew was very vivid for me as a child. And all the more so since I experienced, you know, I grew up for the first five years, almost six years, five and a half years in a very Jewish environment, Jewish and black. But then when we moved, I began to, in the city, I began to uh, encounter antisemitism, you know, so that uh, I had some experiences starting when I was very little, probably when I was six, seven, eight, definitely, you know, some fights and uh, there were areas I wouldn't walk because they were dangerous, as far as I was concerned at the time, in terms of uh, being um, harassed or maybe somebody come and attack me. I probably was overly vivid in my fears about that. But uh, there was some incidents where people would call out anti-Semitic names at me. And that went up all the way till I was in high school. I mean, I was in a fist fight when I was, believe it or not, it's hard for me to believe I actually did that because I was a very pacifistic person. But I think I was in seventh grade but somebody called me some anti-Semitic names and we had a fist fight. Uh, and to me, it wasn't that strange. I kind of expected that to happen. You know, I remember a fight in elementary school in the winter in the playground, and I was bundled up the way my mother did in a coat about 16 inches thick. And uh, I was fighting somebody who also was in a big coat, and we were raining blows on each other. I couldn't feel a single blow because I had such a thick coat. But uh, So I was kind of a tame, you know, tame fighter. And then when I was in high school, you know, the Jewish people didn't really interact much with the non-Jewish people. It was a very separate, it was such a different era. When we had parties or at a swimming pool or something, sometimes a black student from the high school would come, but no, no Gentile students came. So, you know, I, that was, to me, that was normal but I didn't, li- it was normal, but then I didn't like it. I, I began to sort of chafe at this kind of narrowness. And when I went away to college, of course, I was in a very non-Jewish world. So I had some issues about what that would all mean to me. And that carried through to the, like the 67 war was a big event. That was much later, of course, than those years. But I guess still then, I was still very identified with Israel. And I had friends who were Thinking of going to volunteer. Now, it's interesting because my father was not fanatically pro Israel. He kind of uh, thought it was a mistake to have a Jewish country. He thought it would just be like a target and it wouldn't be good for the Jews. He was skeptical about it. So that was something else that he and I disagreed about. Yeah, so uh, then when, uh, while I was a senior in medical school, I had a fellowship to go to West Africa to study tropical medicine, I was, a, I was initially in Gabon. I arrived in Gabon right after the, the famous Putsch, where the French helped overthrow the Gabonese new Gabonese government. It was widely believed there that the Americans had been supporting the Putsch effort. And so the American groups were expelled from Gabon right before I arrived there. There was still a small, there was an American embassy with a few people but the ambassador had been sent home. And there had been a Peace Corps there, but they were sent home. I didn't know any of this. So I arrived there. I, I originally was living with a doctor. He was from Sao Tome. You know, he had invited me. That's a complicated story, but he decided it wasn't a good idea for me to live with him because he could get in trouble for having an American at his house. So he Uh, There wasn't any trouble, but then I uh, moved to live with a French Protestant minister who ran a church there in Gabon. I don't know how, but people knew that I was there. So young people my age would drop by sometimes to find out who I was and to try to explain to me why the government needed to change and why, you know, all that.
0: Were these just young people... From the area? Or
1: other? Yeah, yeah. Things kind of evolved. And so somebody in the foreign minister's office called me to come in and bring my documents. And there was a whole rigmarole going on there. They told me I couldn't work. They didn't want me to work in Gabon. So I wasn't allowed to go to the hospital where I had been doing my thing as this medical student. So I was just hanging out, going to the beach, It it was very nice, actually. But what they did? Did did they give you a reason? They didn't know why I was there. I had been taking pictures around town, things like that. I think while I was not allowed to go to the hospital, I did walk around town and took take pictures. Uh, At a certain point, the American, the acting, there wasn't an ambassador. There was an a lower official, and he came by and he told me that. I had to leave the country, and um, that the government was complaining about me, and I was embarrassing the American embassy because they didn't know they didn't hadn't known I was coming. I had a visa from the Gabonese embassy. Then I got this summons. A policeman came to the minister's house, and he gave me this summons. And I opened it up and it said, you must report to the commissariat de police. And it had a time and a date, but the time and the date were the week before. So I didn't know quite what to do. So I I went over to the commissariat de police and I went into the building. It was completely deserted, deserted. And I'm walking around the corridor and then I see a European sitting in an office. So I knocked on his door and I introduced myself and I said, you know, I had gotten this letter. And and so he, he said, come in, sit down. And he said he was the concierge Technique uh, to the uh, Gabonese police. So he asked me to explain the whole situation, which I did from beginning to end. And he thought it was hilariously funny. He laughed and laughed, you know. And he said, well... I understand. He says, all right, you know, just go home. Everything will be fine. Nothing is going to happen to you. I guarantee, you know, I, I guarantee. And then it was after that, I think, that the American person came, gave me, gave me this ticket to leave town. That was, and it was like a Monday, and I, he got me a, a flight on Friday. He kind of told me I had to leave. So then I said, all right, you know. So what am I supposed to do? You know, he said, well, I think you should leave town. So I want you to go to Lamborene. You can go to the Schweitzer Hospital and stay there and then come back on Friday and you'll leave the country. So I did that. I went to the Schweitzer Hospital and I explained why I was there. And they said I could stay there till Friday. So I stayed there till Friday, which was very interesting. Uh, where you know, and I got to meet Albert Schweitzer, and uh, then I came back to Libreville, and then on Friday, I went to the airport. I still have a picture somewhere, I think, but that I was put on this little tiny plane. It was like a four-seater plane, and we flew over the jungle, and we actually flew to Sao Tome to, uh, to Rio Muni, to Rio Muni. Anyway, this so it's quite an exciting story. Then from there, I went to uh, Rio Muni. I went to the Cameroon. I got a flight from there to Yaounde or to Douala, one of those cities.
0: With the goal, with the goal of, of getting out, like it was a yeah.
1: The goal was I was going to. Well, I didn't know what I was going to do. I I thought I would try to stay somewhere in Africa while I was in Gabon in Libreville before I left. I got a visa for the Cameroon because I knew there were there was an American missionary hospital there. So I thought I could go there. I thought I had to live up to my fellowship. So I did go there and I went to this it was a Protestant American missionary activity and they had a hostel where I stayed and I met their couple missionary doctors. And I was there for a while and they wanted me to work there, but they had to get a permission for me to work from the foreign minister's office. And the foreign minister was in Paris and nobody else, no lower ranking person would give them the permission. So finally, while I was waiting there and I got, I got to visit around a little bit there. uh, I met the ambassador from Liberia to the Cameroon by accident in a cafe. And I explained, you know, my situation. And he said, oh, you can come to Liberia. We like Americans here. I'll give you this visa. So off I went to Liberia. Being there in the Cameroon and in Gabon gave me, made me realize, especially when I came back, because the Vietnam War was just starting up, how hopeless it was to try to fight a war in a country like that without paved roads. I knew it would be a disaster, so I had no, I was totally convinced when I came back that this was a big mistake to go to Vietnam.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to Stories.
1: You're welcome. It's interesting for me to revisit these periods.
0: Thank you, Louis. Thank you, Lewis, again for coming on. This has been the first part of Lewis's two-part story series. Tune in next week to hear about Lewis's experience in the U.S. Air Force and his time protesting the U.S. military and the war in Vietnam. Thank you Dimitri for the music, and we look forward to seeing everybody next week.